Hi, I'm Graham Mack and welcome to the Pod 20. On this week's show, if you have trouble getting to sleep, I've got the perfect podcast for you. Have the makers of James Bond films made a big mistake that they can't undo? I'll talk to the presenters of the James Bond A to Z podcast. And Bildo and Lindelin from Wine Chats will tell me about their plans for world domination. It's the Pod 20, which is heard on podcast radio on DAB in London, the home counties, Manchester, Birmingham and Glasgow, on demand in the USA at talkers.com, around the world on multiple platforms and as a podcast itself. Let's get into the chart now. And at number 20, distractible, thoughtful discussions about funny, out there or otherwise interesting stories from everyday life. 19. Case file, true crime, fact is scarier than fiction. At 18, Values and Vibrators with Charlotte Crosby. From having your lady bits splashed all over international television to dealing with heartbreak in public, this is Queen Crosby at her best, raw and unfiltered. 17, Nothing Much Happens. Bedtime Stories for Grown-Ups. It's written and presented by Catherine Nikolai. Catherine, where are you based? I am in Michigan, about an hour north of Detroit. I've been to Michigan. Mm. I went to the Henry Ford at Dearborn. Um, nice. Which is the, where the, car, the Ford car plant is. And uh, there's an amazing museum there that Henry Ford put together. Which yeah. in, Have you been? Yes, definitely. It's beautiful. The convertible that Kennedy was shot in is only a few yards away from the chair that Lincoln was sitting in when he was shot at the Ford Theater, bizarrely yeah, there's enough. there's a lot of connections. <laughs> there, is the, the, there is that thing. And also the bus uh, that Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on. It is an interesting museum in Dearborn. So how far are you from there? Um, probably about 45 minutes. Not too far at all. Okay. And Detroit's had its issues over the years, hasn't it? It is. And I'm actually from Flint, Michigan, which... Ooh, okay. Uh, Yes. Where the water was <laughs> but we bad. we are survivors in Michigan. <laughs> That's one thing you can say about us. Yeah. So what kind of upbringing was it? Um, you know, Flint in the 80s, a lot of people are aware of Flint now because our water has been poisoned and is still poisoned with lead. Um, but Flint in the 80s was not easy either because it was the world headquarters of General Motors. And then General Motors left Flint and closed almost every factory and almost every person I knew, every neighbor worked for GM or worked for a company that worked for GM. So suddenly an entire town was out of work. Um, so it was a, it wasn't a, an easy place to grow up in, but I also think that people from Flint's kind of, like I said, they're survivors and they're used to doing for each other. So there's actually a great, like, neighborly feeling there of people feeling like, well, we're going to have to take care of each other because nobody else is coming to save us. Was your family directly affected by that, by the closure of GM? Yeah. Um, my parents, my dad worked at the shop for a while, which is what we all call GM. We just call it the shop. He worked at the shop for a while and lost his job. And my parents um, married a, like three or four days after some major closures and they said they opened up their wedding envelopes and there'd be one or two dollars inside them because it was all people could give them, you know, because all of their friends had lost their jobs and 
you know, everyone's property values went down and neighborhoods you said turned wedding into ghost envel- Did you say wedding envelopes? Yeah, at my parents' wedding when they got their, you know, like gifts of wedding envelopes. I see, of cash, yes, I see, right. Yeah, they got and, one or two dollars. Oh, I get you. Kids. People just gave what they had and it wasn't much. That's- and that was it. That was all that people had. So they thought they were going to go on a honeymoon. Instead, they drove down to Detroit for two nights at a hotel. <laughs> so how did that affect you? How old were you when this all happened? You know, um, I was born in 1980 and um, we lived right in Flint until um, I was probably about nine or 10 when we finally were able to afford to move to another place. But I think that that's when I started telling my bedtime stories to myself. Um, that I was probably looking for an adaptive way to feel safe at night. There was a lot of violence. Um, you know, we lived right next door to a house that sold drugs that was known as just a, a drug house. And people were shot when we lived next to it. And um, one time the police came to bust up the drug house but we had the same house number as them just on a different street. And they came into our house and it was my mom. Armed and police. And my, yes, just broke down the door. And we were really young. It was just my, my dad was at work and my mom was by herself with two children at 10 o'clock at night and um, with 20 cops running into her house. So I think that was a moment for my mom where she was like, I don't care how much money we lose. I don't care how, if we have to live in a truck where we're going. (laughs) And, um, and uh, yeah, so I think that it's been part of my life that I've had to always learn how to soothe myself and find someplace comfortable and safe to tuck into at bedtime. So you've got economic issues, unemployment issues with the family, which, of course, the the economic issues. There's crime all around you. But when you go to bed at night, you're telling yourself stories. You're you're going to another place. Just yeah. Is this just to get to sleep or is this just to find a certain amount of peace? Probably to, probably both, to f- come down from the anxiety that was just ubiquitous and was the air that we breathed in those days. And that's obviously a feeling probably everyone can relate to after the last, you know, 14 months is that, you know, anxiety is just part of our daily day experience. So I think I use those stories to soothe myself to try to take my mind someplace where I felt really safe. Um, because I didn't always feel safe even in my own home. Was it about control as well, do you think? Um, probably not then, but I've had lots of experience with that as I get older (laughs) of trying to control scenarios. And, um, that's been a big part of my mental health is sort of, uh, noticing what coping mechanisms are about control. I think as a kid too, I also just had a big imagination and I loved the fact that I could create anything in my mind. I felt like, does that, does everybody do this? Like, this is so great. You can go anywhere in your mind. And you can make anything. And um, so I was always excited to get into bed at night and turn off the light and dream something up. So um, I think that was another, that was probably the shiny, healthy part of it, is that I just had a big imagination. And that imagination is now helping millions of people around the world get a good night's sleep. Nothing much happens. Bedtime stories for grown-ups is at number 17 this week on the Pod 20. At 16... Anatomy of murder. A murder case has many layers. The victim, 
the crime and the investigation. To truly understand it, you need to dissect each piece of a tragic puzzle. 15. Today in Focus from The Guardian, the podcast that takes you behind the headlines for a deeper understanding of the news every weekday. Number 14. The James Bond A to Z. Presented by Tom Butler, Tom Wheatley and Brendan Duffy. What first got you interested in James Bond? Brendan, do you want to go first? Oh, well, it's just me going to be talking about Pierce Brosnan for the next 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. That's what you want. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm unsure whether the first one I saw at the cinema is either Tomorrow Never Dies or The World Is Not Enough. Now, right. they came out quite close together, but I know it was Pierce Brosnan and Pierce Brosnan fueled my um, obsession with Bond because I think he's the, the perfect Bond. Um, and yeah, moving forward, I've always just kept up. And then you go back and you look back at the old ones and... Yeah, it just grows and grows. And I mean, the 60s ones are classics, aren't they? So, you know, you just get enraptured by the, the whole Bond world. And Tom? Yeah, I, um, I've i always had a bit of an obsession with old films since I was, I think I watched old films from when I was about 12 years old. It's my, my dad's fault. He doesn't like new films, basically. So I was forced to watch old films as a kid. But um, yeah, I think... Um, ever since I started watching the old Sean Connery ones when I was really young that I don't know, I'd never never classed myself as being really into Bond. I've just always, you know, just always enjoyed them. And it wasn't until we talked about doing a podcast that I realized I am quite into Bond and I'm a bit obsessed with it. Um, But for me, it's, it's always been just, it's just, part of a big series of films that I really like. Um, and it's always, cause there's so many of them. It's a big, it's quite a big part of that. Um, but yeah, uh, I've, I've probably, I think the first one I can remember seeing at the cinema, which is probably the same for most people around my age is, is golden eye. Yeah. Um, and yeah, but for me, I think Brendan, Brendan's a little bit obsessed with Piers Brosnan. So a lot of his <laughs> early memories come from, from the Brosnan films. But for me, I, I think I saw Goldeneye and I, I thought it was all right. I wasn't that bothered, but I, I probably spent most of my weekends watching Bond films before that. So for me, it wasn't a big thing in the Bond um, story in the Bond series. But, um, but yeah, I've just, um, she's always been quite a big part of, you know, every conversation I seem to have in the pub. So, Brendan, what is the best Pierce Brosnan Bond film then? It's Goldeneye. Yeah, the, the first one, 1995. Yeah, in my opinion, it's that's the that's the best one. That's the one where he's in the tank, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I like Tomorrow Never Dies as as a as a Pierce Brosnan film, but my you're making me feel really old because the first James Bond film I saw was when it came out at the cinema was Live and Let Die was 1973, wow. Roger Moore's first outing yeah. as James Bond. And I thought it was brilliant. And, oh, I bet, yeah. yeah. And then, uh, um, when I, I, mean, I don't know, what was, was, I was probably, was I nine? Somewhere? But then when I was about 14 at our, our school fair, they had like loads of paperback books and they had the paperback of Live and Let Die. It was probably a first edition as well, I don't know. But anyway, I bought it for about 10p and I found the book... This sounds like really snobby, doesn't it? But I found the book even more enjoyable than the film. And one of the thing I and then and then I read after that I read I think it was Goldfinger and I read From Russia with Love, and then I read a Robert Markham one called Colonel Son, 
Kingsley Amos mm-hmm. called himself Robert Markham for a bit and wrote wrote Fleming's Bond slightly differently. And so I got, they were the first real books I ever, you know, apart from books you have to read at school that I chose to read were the yeah. James Bond books. And about two years ago, I decided to revisit them and I read every one of the Fleming Bond books in the order they were published, starting with Casino Royale. And after that, I really, I really got the feeling, and I don't know if you'll agree, that I bet, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. If only the films could have set the Bond in the Cold War of the 50s where the books are set all the way through, they wouldn't, because some of those Roger Moore ones in the 70s there get a bit dated now. Um, Moonraker, oh, yeah. I yeah. think, is rubbish. And I think it's a lot <laughs> of it is because... <laughs> Well, you know, when that thing with Jaws and the girl with the pigtails and all that, you know, that wasn't, for me, it wasn't James Bond, you know. But I think yeah, Live and Let yeah. Die was brilliant. I still, that's, in fact, Live and Let Die is probably one of my favourite James Bond films, but probably because I saw it first. Do you think maybe they missed, a, they missed a trick that they couldn't have seen coming, that maybe if they'd said... Because in the books, you know, you see like the beginning of Live and da- da- Let Die and it says, you know, that the Boeing Strato cruiser touched down at Idlewild Airport, you know, because it was before it was called JFK and it was before we had, yeah. so, you know, J- Boeing jets and everything. And that, there's a real romance, an extra, it's almost like an extra character in the books now because the books are locked in that time. Do you think maybe the movies could have slipped up? Oh, yeah. We've definitely. talked about this. Have you? Um, and we, yeah, because we've talked about moving forward, we'd like them to make a period piece. And right. You know, in terms of making them on film, the 60s is where, you know, Bond seems timeless. It's sort of a little capsule. Yeah. So those early, the first three, especially Dr. No from Russia with Love and, and uh, Goldfinger. Goldfinger. Yeah. They're just, it just set perfectly. Everything just feels right. And we we dream of uh, them making one set in, in, the, in the early 60s. Yeah. yeah. So very much similar. We've had those conversations. Yeah. So yeah. there's how- a certain style about Bond and, and you lose it when you get into the more technical ones. And um, you look at obviously things like the Piers Brosnan era with Die Another Day and to like Tomorrow Never Dies. They have a, there's a lot of technology in there. And Which was the, the one early- with the invisible car. That was just that's, silly. That's Die Another Day, yeah. And is that the one with the surfing in it? It's just yep. Yep. Oh, terrible. Yep. Yeah, yeah, but you you get this kind of thing where in the early Bonds, he he was very much uh, in the in the books. He was very much a it, it was him using his skills and resourcefulness to solve things. And then later on, he just he just has a watch that does it. So it's all it's all done for <laughs> yeah. him. Um, yeah. But that's and and also there's, I always find a problem with the modern ones is things like mobile phones, which you didn't have originally. Yeah, which just makes things very difficult to do. I think yeah, setting it in a in Cold War era. You just remove all of that and you can just get straight to the story and the characters. Yeah. But right now, we've got the current James Bond new movie out soon. And of course, we've got the James Bond A to Z podcast, which is at number 14 this week. 13. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition, from Comedy Central's Podcast Network. At 12, On Purpose with Jay Shetty. Fascinating conversations with the most insightful people in the world. In the latest episode, Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Bruce Perry talk about healing from childhood trauma. At 11, Sword and Scale, the true crime podcast covering the dark side of humanity and human nature, including murder, rape, dismemberment and cannibalism. The worst monsters are real. At number 10, Wine Chats with Bildo and Lindelin. 
and the only Australian podcast on the chart this week. Now, the podcast is world famous. You're in the top 10 of the pod 20. What's next for Bildo and Lindelin? This year we thought, okay, so we've been doing it for a year and a half now. So we're still fairly new, but we've been in it long enough where we're like, we need to step up you know, take it to the next level. So we're rebranding ourselves. We just had some professional photos taken because we do, we want people to look at us seriously, you know, as a... We're not going away is the point. We're not (laughs) going away. We're here to stay. Yeah. So we want to do live shows. We'd love to be guest speakers. We would love to... Merchandise? You should have a T-shirt with wine chats with Bildo and Lindelin right here, Graham. Next (laughs) time we do an interview, I'll send you you one. You should send me one, yeah, and I'll wear it. Yeah, that's a deal. Absolutely. Yeah. We want to do a whole bunch of things. We don't just want to record podcasts. You know, we want to take to the next level. We Like what Billy said, we don't want to be famous, but we want to known. We want to be known. We want to do as much as we can. And you want to be yeah. rich, obviously. Oh, oh, that too. That would be great. Rich. Yeah. Lindelin's already rich, oh, but like, I want to be that rich <laughs> is what I want. Just like a little bit more, you know? Yeah. But really, we just want to make a business out of it. Yeah. In, all, in all honesty, I think we just... This just feels right for us. You know what I mean? So it's not about making it in the next month. It's not about making it in the next two months. You know, as my friend Matt said, you know, Matt O'Kine said from the beginning, he was like, that's cool. I sat him down. We had our six episodes released and I sat him down and I was like, okay, cool. What do I do now? Because I was still working and I wanted to quit my job and I wanted to pursue this. And he was like, okay, like, <laughs> that's <chill>. cute. <laughs> that's cute. Chill out. <laughs> he was like, anybody can record six episodes of a podcast. Anybody yeah. can record 50. Anybody can record a hundred. Like you need to be able to like long be haul. in it. This yeah. is a long haul thing. This is yeah. not a short term game. So I think like Lindsay said, like we've been doing it for a year and a half now. We're ready to take it to the next level. We've got a bunch of, you know, interviews lined up, mm-hmm. um, you know, a bunch of guests lined up for our podcast. Um, you know, I think we just, now when we've got Rody, who's actually able to you know, facilitate all this. This you know, is the, this this the Roadcaster Pro, which they really should, Road should really have sent you it for free considering you've given them this big plug. Exactly. Oh, right. From your mouth to God's oh. ears, to Road <laughs> God's ears. We will take reimbursement, Road. It is, it is fine. That's right. We'll send you our bank details. It's never too late. <laughs> right? So, yeah, no, we, we just want to start taking it we want to take it seriously enough where people look no, at no. us. We want like, people to start taking yeah, us seriously. That's what I was trying to say, you dip poop. You're not allowed to swear, she, Graham. Said. I said poop. <laughs> See? The P word again, Graham. God. And do you get any kickback from the wine companies that you're clearly giving yeah. free advertising to? Yeah, well, so the way that whole works, and we should say we're actually wine ambassadors for the Hidden Sea wine label, which you is are. amazing. You are, cool. So, Actually, they're yeah. in the UK yeah, and doing some really cool stuff over there. Yes, you should know yes. them. Do you know them? You should I, no, as as I don't drink, they're not really on my radar yeah. at the, and anymore. No. Yeah. So they're amazing. They remove plastic bottles from the ocean every time you buy their wine. So they're not only do they make really good wine, they are literally saving the world, cleaning the world. Um, and they've just won award for people's choice of wine. Wine? No. People's Wine Choice Award in the UK. Yeah. So they're going gangbusters. Um, and yeah, so we're proper wine ambassadors for them, which is really exciting. But we also proper love them as well. Like we yeah. genuinely, like they're such a good company. And we're not, yeah. this isn't like a plug for them or for us or anything. It's just a genuine, like, I just love that we're, I guess, aligned with a brand that's just so passionate about like saving the world yeah. and helping people drink good yeah. wine. Good wine. So, yeah. Holla. But yeah. yeah, we get, I 
Yeah, we get wine sent to us basically yeah. from wine companies. So to be a wine sponsor, um, you should yeah. check out our website, totally. winechatspodcast.com. So you really have <laughs> um, turned yeah. drinking into a professional activity yes. then. Yeah. yeah. This is a proper business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if they send us wine, we'll create an ad yeah. for them that we put in the episode wherever we feature their wine. We obviously showcase their wine on all of our socials and tag them and... Yeah. So it, it's part of the whole business aspect, right? Yeah. Like, so that's the other thing that we want to do. We want to start, you know, collaborating with wineries and, you know, maybe mm. doing a live show at wineries or having us be guest speakers at one of their wine lunches or wine tours or whatever. Yeah. Or, out there like, or, or anywhere <laughs> that, that sells wine. I mean, yeah. there are, so, I've, I've heard there are places that where you can go and buy wine. Yeah. You're uh, yeah. You've got uh, the opportunities here uh, are immense, aren't they, for commercially as well as you know it being just a great podcast about a couple of and ladies keeping it real. Yeah, yeah. We're hoping that podcast radio is going to fly us out to London when <laughs> Corona calms down. I mean, well, that's the we'll only reason. That's the only reason why you're not here now. Is because right? of this whole Corona thing. Because Jerry yeah. usually flies the guests in, um, but yeah, because of the because yeah. of the um, yeah. the situation, this is why we've had to do it this way. So that's only so a matter like of time. We'll be yeah. emailing him as soon as the travel yeah. bans are lifted. And, <laughs> and look, we're happy to fly economy. Like we're, we're not princesses. Economy is fine. Fine, right? Send a really? Yeah. <laughs> Jesus, I'll take forever. <laughs> We'll do it. <laughs> Two well, weeks away from the kids. Wow. <laughs> I, I hope you do. I hope you get to, to London at some stage and I get to interview uh, in actually podcast radio studios. And of course, I'll be wearing the Wine Chats t-shirt at the time. Of course. So I'm looking forward to it for when it happens. Wine Chats with Bildo and Lindelin is at number 10 this week on the Pod 20. At nine, that Peter Crouch podcast. Peter Crouch, Tom Fordyce and Chris Stark bring you their guide to being a professional footballer. Eight, Monday morning podcast. Bill Burr rants about relationships, sports and the Illuminati. Number seven, Freakonomics Radio. Discover the hidden side of everything with Stephen J. Dubner, the co-author of the Freakonomics books. Number six, The Hardy Report with Edward Hardy. Ed, you cover American politics in depth, and last time I spoke to you, you talked about the amount of misinformation online, especially in the run-up to the last presidential election. And you said you wanted social media platforms to be regulated. The thing is, with all the right-wing whack jobs whipping things up on social media, and how America values free speech... That's not going to happen, is it? I fear that you're probably right to an extent. <laughs> I wish you weren't, is, is the sort of situation. I think we have to try. We can't just give up the fight. Uh, and, you know, this is like with misinformation circulating on, on social media, sites have started to act because people kept fighting and kept fighting and kept fighting. And, okay, it's not completely fixed, but we're on the road there. Social media has done a lot of positives but it's done a lot of damage in the few years that it's been around in in our in our life and if those companies now put the same level of effort that they did into becoming the global powers that they have become into fixing the problems and even going further and trying to fix the divisions that exist within our societies i think they're able to do that i think they have such a strong power and 
I think these social media companies really could use their force for goods. They've got, uh, you know, banks of, of financial ability that they don't have to worry about losing a little bit of revenue here and there. They're able to actually go out and make this difference. And I think it comes down to them actually really stepping up and saying, we're going to do what we can here um, to fix the problem that arguably they have caused. Let's let's say it went further. Let's say, you know, it had to be regulated even more. We're talking now regulating the internet, which is a scary place. You are a world-famous podcaster. You know, your political leaning from the American point of view is to the left of the... It's more, it's more liberal and, and progressive, as it would be called there, than, um, than, than the supporter of the GOP. How would you feel if they started, if somebody started saying to you, you know, your podcast needs to be a bit more balanced because you're not having enough Republicans on and you're not challenging the, the Democrats you have on? You know, they, we're in a dodgy area there, my friend. This is why I think people don't want to get to a point where regulation has to occur. People don't want to have to be regulating everything that can be said. That, for example, that after the interview, you have to interview someone who's directly the polar opposite of me to me. Well, I, when I worked for the BBC, that was, you know, I did a breakfast show at BBC Wiltshire and I went through two general elections when I was there. And that was literally what you had to do if you if you had somebody from one, you had to give them equal airtime. You had to do that. Yeah. If the organisation chooses that approach, I think that's perfectly reasonable. Yeah, it wasn't a regulation. It, it was it was the organisation. There was a policy of the, of, of the BBC. I think when, when you get to a point of regulation, I think that's always the last resort. I don't think anyone truly wants to get to a point of regulation regulation with the internet and speech and all of that because then you you get to this world that people fear of uh, and people talk about of you know an authoritarian situation where the government chooses exactly what you know is allowed to go on air i think people would be concerned about that and i don't think that you'd be able to get enough support because of that concern whether or not it was the right way to go i just don't think you'd ever be able to get that level of support in politics or in in whichever country you're in to actually secure regulation sometimes sometimes the regulation can mean you get something uh you can you can end up with a bias because of the regulation for instance it also finds that someone pops up elsewhere uh you know you you have those sites that are now popping up because they think that twitter's too regulated or or too hard censorship so you you end up where these alternatives will emerge and it's it's never going to fully stamp out the problem what you have to do is you have to work with these companies and these companies have to work for the better of society you take facebook for example it was set up to connect us and keep us connected to build a world where we can all communicate together wasn't it it set up though for for horny university students to rate I, I think um, other university how, students uh, for their sex appeal wasn't that why well, it was set up? I think that's how the social network film portrays <laughs> how it was set up. I think Mark Zuckerberg might have a different view as as that, to how it was set up or why it was set up. But arguably, it was about connectivity and communication. What the motivation behind that was, you you can choose for yourself. But if you had a site that was about communication, that's really important. You look at Twitter; it was a about ensuring that people could follow the news as and when it was happening, instead of having to wait for uh, the BBC to report what was going on. If there was an incident, you know, or something positive or something negative in an area, you would know instantly because the people around it would be able to share what was going on. That's a really important tool. 
And almost certainly social media has done some good in being able to expose some terrible atrocities uh, and get the word out about that. And some really brave activists around the world have, have used it for that good. And if that's what it was doing, that's fantastic. And it can still do that. And the sites want to do that. What they have to do is they have to stamp out when you have deranged conspiracy theories and misinformation. And while we can talk about, you know, we could say, well, where's the line on that? I think there are things that we could all agree shouldn't be being publicized. You know, it sounds like an absurd line, but giant space lasers and wildfires shouldn't be being put on social media talking about the earth is flat, things we can all agree are wrong, shouldn't be out there. Yeah. Edward Hardy, The Hardy Report, is at number six on the pod 20. Into the top five now, and at number five, Conan O'Brien needs a friend. After 25 years at the late night desk, Conan has never made a real and lasting friendship with any of his celebrity guests. So, he started a podcast to fix that. Number four, the Lazarus heist. It was almost the perfect crime. It was a hacking ring and an attempt to steal a billion dollars. Investigators blame North Korea, and the story starts in Hollywood. At number three, Off Menu with Ed Gamble and James Acaster. Ed and James invite special guests into their magical restaurant to choose their favourite starter, main course, side dish, dessert and drink. Number two, Rob Beckett and Josh Widdicombe's lockdown parenting hell. Parenting, just not as you know it. And for the second week at number one... Absolutely mental. Ricky Gervais phones his favourite smart friend, the neuroscientist and philosopher Sam Harris, to ask some very important questions and some not-so-important ones. That's it for episode 57 of the Pod 20. Thanks to this week's guest pod stars, Catherine Nicolai, Tom Butler, Tom Wheatley, Brendan Duffy, Bildo and Lindelin, and Edward Hardy. My special guest next week will be Kevin Kautzman from The Art of Darkness. It's a podcast that deals with the dark things that influence art. This is a fairly new podcast, Kevin. It's getting quite a loyal following. Are you managing to monetize it yet? You got the Patreon thing going? Yeah, we're trying to do that. I yeah. mean, you know, for us, it's it's a question of like, yeah, how do we, What what is our end game? There yeah. are a lot of little, you know, angles. We have a Patreon. The, uh, the angle there is uh, after each episode, we unpack the episode 30 minutes, uh, you know, for people. It's it's a it's a Pareto principle, right? Like it's like the big podcasts crush, and then there's a very steep drop after that. Yeah, yeah, but now you're getting publicity and and awareness on podcast radio, and you're live on YouTube. It's only a matter of time, isn't Incredible. it? Incredible. I mean, yo, I mean, it's just yeah. The people you talk about, the creative people that have a dark side, that make it as topics on the Art of Darkness podcast. They're all dead. Mm -hmm. Why? I mean, not why are they dead, but why do you choose dead people, not living people? Well, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to get into anything, uh, you know, too salty with somebody alive. <laughs> it's terrible. Well, well, the, the, 
there's, yeah. there's a less there's no chance of defam you can't defame the dead that's that's sort of i mean john lennon you know you know has yeah Oh yeah, that's why. That's why. And John Lennon is a good example. When somebody dies, all these books suddenly appear about them. Right? They did the yeah, same exactly. with Elvis. Suddenly, it's because exactly. it's so because us, you it's can't like, be sued. Yeah. No, I mean when I, you know, when I was doing the Kubrick episode, I was kind of sensitive to. I felt a little because I started doing research on uh, his family and the, and then you know I was watching the. I turn on YouTube and suddenly I'm getting the the documentary about Kubrick and it's pretty clear they were trying to smooth his reputation. Of course. And I felt a little bad. I was like, oh, no, you know, it's it, people are sensitive. He's not that far gone. Yeah. Kubrick. So, yeah. you know, the answer to your question is it's liberating. We can kind of just be free to yeah. talk about people. Yeah. But if you're dead 20 years, I mean, you've still got kids and grandkids and nobody wants too much smack. Yeah. Yeah. Just as a respect thing, not just from the legal point of view. Yeah. Yeah. I don't care about legality. I mean, <laughs> I don't care at all. I mean, you know, it's, this is America. Tell me about the psychedelic portraits. Oh, uh, oh, the psychedelic portraits. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, that goes back to the other podcast that I have, which is get this, get this podcast.com. Yeah. And uh, there's this great internet character. Uh, she's a wonderful. Uh, Peniel Collada is her name. Yeah. She does these weird, funky, psychedelic portraits of the um, the various artists. Kind of fun. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, if you go to, uh, you know, artofdarkpod.com, you can find what she's done. Yeah. More from Kevin Kautzman from the Art of Darkness podcast next week on the Pod 20. If you'd like to watch extended video chats with my guests, check them out on YouTube and subscribe to my YouTube channel. What will happen on the podcast radio chart next week? Will Ricky Gervais and Sam Harris still be at the top of the chart? Will your favourite podcast be at number one? Find out with me, Graham Mack, and influence the chart. Make a recommendation at thepodcastradio.co.uk. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery and I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects.